Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Again this week we turn to the book of 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. What is commonly known as the love chapter of scripture and Again, this week in 1 Corinthians 13, we'll do the first four verses. Israel, come here. Come on. Hurry up. Hurry up. Come on, come on up. Oh, don't be such a wuss. Come on. Come on. Oh, you can have a fit. Am I going to eat you alive? Don't you want to eat? You can just read it. You can just read it for me. You know how to read, right? Come on, come on, come on, come on. There you go. All right. I figure we ought to have young men read us the Bible, right? Okay, this is what I want you to read. Stand up straight and say, this is the word of God and it's eternally true. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Got to give you the microphone. See, you're not so bashful. All right, there we go. Okay. This is the word of God, and it's eternally true. Yeah, but first this, say what I just said to say. This is the word of God, and it's eternally true. Right on. All right, now go ahead and read it. Right here. Yep. If I speak with the tongue of men, and the ain't, wait. And yeah, of right. angels, but I don't not have love. That's right. I become a nosy gong. Yep, gong. A gong or a challenge chimney. Clanging symbol. Symbol. That's like this thing right here. Bling, bling. Okay. If I have knowledge, the gift of prophecy. prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith, so as I remove all my well, oh, mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing, period. Um, three, well, oh, do yeah, I say that? Okay. You don't have to say it, that's okay. <laughs> and if I give mountains. All my. Oh, all my. Yeah, you know, all your possessions. You know, all right? my possessions to feed the poor. And if I surrender, surrender my body and be burned, but I do not have love and profit me, nothing. nothing. Love is... Hey, come on, hurry up. <laughs> <laughs> love is patient and kind and... Is not jealous. Love doesn't give. Does not brag. brag. and it is not arrogant. 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 Did he do good? Good job, son. Very good job. So we're going through the love chapter and we 
have looked at uh, these verses for a couple of weeks now, and we've learned that the Corinthian church is a church that's very up, very divided, and you know, if there's something to fight about, this church fights over it. And it may not have been, in most respects, real loud fights, although when it gets into a courtroom, that, I think, qualifies as loud. And we know they were going to court against each other. Um, But I mean, they were fighting over everything. But they also were very convinced that they were God's gift to mankind. They thought they had everything. They thought they were rich. They thought they were wise. They thought they had all knowledge. They thought they had all the spiritual gifts. They thought they had it together. And so the Apostle Paul is writing to them about all the things they're fighting about and about all their sins, and he stops in the middle and he says, hey, wait a second. Let's get back and let's, let's, uh, let's knock the whole thing down to the foundation. If you have all knowledge, you have the gift of tongues, if you have prophet, if you have all these things that you think you have, but you don't have love, you're nothing. He says a similar thing about the Lord's Supper, where he says it would be better if you didn't even, you know, your Lord's Supper practice, you know, and you think of all the fighting over liturgy today, you know, so many churches fight over what words to use at the Lord's Supper. And he says it would be better that you didn't do it at all than you did it the way you did it because they were fighting at the Lord's table and their fighting at the Lord's table was different than what they took to court. So he stops here and it's a very short chapter. It wasn't a chapter at the time, but it's a very short section on love. Uh, And it starts by talking about the wonderful things that are nothing without love. Then it talks about what love is. What, what are the virtues that make up love? And then it talks about how love is going to survive, that it's eternal, that it's perpetual. When all these other gifts are gone, love will remain. And those are the three divisions of the chapter. And so basically what he's saying to the Corinthians, you know, you, you remember me telling you that I'm out on the lake up in the boundary waters with my brothers and my dad, two brothers and a dad, so we have two canoes. David has the compass and I have the map. And that's a perfect storm for controversy because the one needs the other. And both of us are trying to save us from, you know, how you can paddle forever on a lake if you don't know where the landing for the next portage is. And so David and I are going at it, hammer and tongs, and my dad looks at, what would Jesus think of you now? I hadn't thought about that, you know. You know, you're just completely mortified. Well, that's what would have gone on when they got this letter. And they got to this section of the letter, and the Apostle Paul, and you know, one guy's tongues, one guy's riches, one guy, they all have their their thing that makes them great. And then he says, you know, all those things without love. So everybody at this point is very embarrassed. Everybody knows that Paul has their number. Everybody's mouth is shut, right? And, you know, if in the middle of a fight in your home, your wife got out this chapter and read it out loud to you, you might be stupid enough to argue with her, but I doubt it. You'd probably just shut up okay, I'm not going to argue with 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, right? And so he has gotten through the section where he says all these gifts that are spiritual without love, they're nothing. And now we've moved into the virtues, the character traits 
that love is. All right, and it starts with the things that it is, and then it moves into the things it isn't. The two things it is, is love is patient and love is kind. Now, what is a patient? Well, it helps to know that the people that sit in and lie in a hospital bed are called patients. <laughs> because if you've been in a hospital bed, you know that you need to be patient, because that's what you are. You can't act for yourself. Other people have to act on you. So you have to wait to go to the bathroom. You have to wait to get your baby. You have to, no matter what's going to happen, you have to wait. And most of all, you have to wait for the doctor. You have to wait for your x-rays, for your CAT scans. You have to wait for everything. What does it take to wait? It takes patience. So patience in the hospital, from the time they first register to go in the hospital or come in the emergency room, they're hit right at the door of the hospital with this unbelievably intense message. You don't matter, right? You ever gone into an emergency room and tried to get help? You know, it's an exercise in futility. Why? Well, if you're going to come in and sit in one of their bedrooms or beds, they want you to know that you don't matter. And so when you come in the emergency room, you don't matter. Or if you come in the normal, you're referred from your from your doctor, you have to sit there in those rooms and they, they find out who your great-great-grandmother's second cousin was. You don't matter. Now, I'm being a little bit humorous about this, although that really is what it's like going in a hospital. That's why Monroe Hospital says, we'll actually get you in the emergency room, you know. But you have to be patient in the hospital because why? Well, because the doctor's more important than you are, right? Right? And then the nurse is more important than you are, right? And then the nurse's aide is more important than you, and the cafeteria workers are more important than you, and the pastor's more important than you when he comes in. About the only people that aren't more important than you are maybe sweet family members, if you have any of them. Patience is putting other people before you and waiting on them. So to be a patient in a hospital is to know that everybody else takes priority over you, unless you go into severe arrhythmia. And then everybody will come to you, but that's not good news, actually. <laughs> you don't want to be the center of attention in a hospital. <laughs> okay, now, are you a patient person? Are you able to say that other people's priorities are more important than yours? Are you able to put yourself in a position of humility to serve other people? And I'm not asking what kind of a job you have. Some of you have a job like that, but when you come home, all of a sudden you jump back to the top. <laughs> you know? Just because you have to be patient in your job doesn't mean you're patient at home, right? At home, would your husband, would your wife, would your mother, would your children say that you love to, to subordinate, to bring under other people's priorities and desires what yours are? That's what it means to be patient. It means that you allow other people to inconvenience you, you allow them to make the decisions, you allow their schedule to take precedence over yours. 
And there are all kinds of ways in our home life that we see whether or not this is true. One of them is who chooses what gets cooked? Do you choose or do you ask your husband what he would like? And husbands, are you aware of your wife's preferences when she asks you what you want for dinner? Are you aware of what she would like? Are you aware of how long it takes to cook it? Right? This, This is basic stuff, right? A patient person brings their desires, their schedule, their importance under other people. Right? I mean, all of you, in your brain, you know this, right? <laughs> Come on. In your brain, you know this. But do you do it? Now, what is kindness? Kindness is sort of the opposite of patience. Kindness is when you have somebody who's nasty, and you proactively do things to help them to shower goodness on them in the way you do things and what you do so that you make their life easier. And the kinder you are, the more you'll do it to those who can't be kind back to you. In other words, kindness is kind of defined by doing it to people that you're enemies or people that can't ever repay you. That's what a kindness is. So patience is not acting sort of in a way that puts you at the top and kindness is you taking steps, making food, bringing cookies, uh, getting chairs from the closet. It's you thinking about other people and before they can ask, before, while they're still your enemies, you're kind. God is kind to us because while we are still his enemies, he dies for us. And so love is patient And love is kind. Now, you remember in the Beatitudes that Jesus says that the meek will inherit the earth. You remember that? So it's a similar list of very short things. And if I were to ask you outside, like for instance, when you're watching a video of Donald Trump, If I were to ask you who will inherit the earth, what would you say? As you're watching a movie of Donald Trump, would you say the meek? I mean, it's a joke. Because Donald Trump isn't meek. Right? Does everybody know this? Everybody's uptight about the election, so I'm not getting any love. Come on. Donald Trump isn't meek, right? I mean, you don't think I'm criticizing our president-elect when I say that. It's just an obvious statement of fact. And hasn't Donald Trump inherited the earth? I mean, honestly. (laughs) It's got Trump Tower and Trump Casino and Trump White House and Trump everything. Right? And Trump women. So God says the meek shall inherit the earth. And don't you say that God has a little bit of a credibility problem there? Because it doesn't look like the meek are going to inherit the earth, right? Right? So what it looks like to us when we don't have the eyes of faith and we don't trust the character of God, all right, it looks like the brash, the loud, and the pushy, and the strong will inherit the earth. Doesn't it look like that? And it's so obnoxious. But the truth is, if you look at your own heart and your own personality, you know that it's much more difficult to be patient than it is to be impatient. (laughs) Have you ever tried to be patient? 
I've never tried it, but some of you, some of you sometimes have. And here's what scripture says about the nature of strength, all right? This is God. This is not the world. This isn't what you saw in the elections this last week, but this is God. God says, he who is slow to anger, and that's the very definition of patience, is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. In other words, true strength is being patient. The man who is strongest, yesterday, Joseph and Paul Belcher and I were driving, trying to look for a basketball to buy, and we went into a little corner store, and there was this dude. And I'm telling you, he was a specimen. Big shoulders and big things here, whatever these are called, and... I don't know what you call them on men, but anyhow, big them. And, and I think he didn't have a shirt on. And so because he was out with a buff body without a shirt on, I told him that he had a very nice body. I figure if people take, you know, their, their black lab out, you should compliment the lab. <laughs> Listen, you have to see through the world and you have to realize that the world is not the way things are. It's Trump Tower is weakness. The White House's weakness, the king's heart, is at the control of God. It's a river that God controls. The election was under God's control. doesn't mean that we don't have an obligation to vote and vote our conscience. That's important. But don't think that buff bodies have anything to do with strength. They don't. It's infinitely easier for that guy to have the specimen body that he has than it is for you to control your temper and to control your impatience. And so young men, <laughs> you know, sometimes I'd say to my kids, do as I say and not as I do. Control your anger. Learn patience now. And that's much more important than going and working out. I mean, working out is, you know. I mean, I used to do it when I was in college. I used to lift weights. It was a Anyhow, what I should have done is learn patience. So, he who is slow to anger, patient, is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures his city. You ever been in an argument, an intense argument with somebody, and you have felt God giving you the ability to shut your mouth? Anybody ever had that happen? You ever had that happen? It's mind-boggling. You like want to take like a, a, a microscope and put it down your throat and see where that came from. You know, where did I learn to shut my mouth in an, an intense argument? You know, and you know, want to know where you get it from? You get it from incredible numbers of arguments where you didn't shut your mouth, and it was so painful for you to get your pound of flesh. The results of it are like a vapor. 
you know, or not a vapor. They're like a, a, a snake that comes back and eats you. You know, after you're done getting your pound of flesh, you always pay the price for it. And so you've paid the price so many times for your impatience. Finally, you begin. And, and just about the time you begin to learn patience, you die. Honestly, that's life. And so patience puts other people above you. It allows their schedule to be your schedule, to take precedence. You put them. Here's something to do. When you're waiting at line for something, not a man, but if there's a woman there, put her in front of you in the line. If she doesn't want to go, just walk around behind her and stand there and say, I ain't going to move. It'll probably take something like that. Patience. My dad and I, people are scandalized by this, but there was a skit that we used to have at InterVarsity camps. And, uh, and it was this skit where it went on and on. All skits go on and on and on. And then at the end, you have somebody who's a figurehead, like the speaker at the conference or something like that. And he's at the end of the line. And the very, you know, the punchline is that somebody turns to him and says, patience, jackass, patience. And of course, they have to say it, but they don't want to say it because it's the speaker. You know, my dad would look at me and my dad would say to me, patience, jackass, patience. And it's a wonderful thing to say to your children. It is. It is. It's a wonderful thing because the jackass part kind of takes the pressure off. You know, because you know your dad loves you and he's not really calling you a jack, but you know he really is calling you a jackass. You know, he know, you know that if you don't get some patience, he'll call you a jackass. And you have to have that kind of light touch in your families where, well, no, seriously. No, where you realize and you realize with your kids that there's going to, with many trials and hardships, we enter the kingdom of God. And all of us fail constantly, it says in James. You know, not many of you should desire to be teachers, for you may be certain that we who teach will ourselves be judged with greater strictness, and then what's the next statement? All of us often go wrong. Patience. And so every time I'm impatient, I hear my dad say, patience, jackass, patience. It lives on. Especially in the car especially at roundabouts. <laughs> love is patient, and love is kind. What does God say about kindness? Well, first, in 2 Peter 3, 9, we read, the Lord is not slow about his promises, some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And you know, if you're a Christian this morning, if you're here and you're actually a Christian, you, you, you have faith in Jesus Christ and you've been baptized, you come to the Lord's table. If you think back on before you repented and put your faith in Jesus, think of those years. Think of getting drunk, smoking dope, Think of the sex. Think of the greed, the bitterness that consumed your life. (laughs) 
Think of your sin and ask yourself, how long, if you were God, would you have put up with you? You know? The kindness and patience of God is incredible, and and we fault him for not acting swifter when it comes to our political enemies. You know, why doesn't he judge our leaders? Why doesn't he judge Isis? Why doesn't he judge this, that, and the other thing? And then God says, hey, listen, God's not slow. Remember, my kindness led you to repentance. My patience has led you to repentance. Now, if that's true of us before we come to the Lord, think of how patient God is with us after he adopts us as his sons and daughters. Think about your besetting sins. Think about those sins that you've committed again and again and again. And again and again and again, you've asked God to forgive you. After all, the really difficult thing for us is not other people's failures often, but it actually is our sins. We'll often talk about other people's sins as a way of taking attention off ourselves. But an awful lot of what depresses us and makes us fearful. And isn't that, in fact, the reason that death is so scary to us? We know it's appointed unto man once to die and after that the judgment. We know that we will be ushered into eternity and we will meet a holy God. And is there anybody at the end of life that feels like they've arrived? No. There are people who have seared their conscience so long that they have no fear. But that's because God's given them over to their delusions. But if you have any sensitivity to God, my general, I mean, I want to be with the Lord, but not now. Why? Well, because I want to learn more patience. I want to learn more kindness. I want to stop being arrogant. I want to stop being um, angry. And so God is not just patient with us before we come to faith in him. He's also patient with us after we come to faith with him. And it's unbelievable how patient he is with us. I mean, you know this is true, right? All of you? You know? It's one thing for your wife to be patient with you. But your wife is a sinner just like you are. It's incredible when God is patient with us. I use this often because I love it. It it gave me great hope and it was an encouragement to me. This is written back 500 years ago by John Donne and it's called A Hymn to God the Father. He says, will you, he's speaking to God, it's a prayer. He says, will you forgive that sin where I begun, which was my sin, though it were done before? Will you forgive that sin through which I run and do run still, though still I do deplore? So, you know, you can imagine running through a field of corn, standing corn. And that's the way he views his sins, that he's running through it. And he deplores it. You know how the corn stalks will rip your skin as you go through them and whip you and stuff. And, you know, that's what it's like to sin. You know, you're running through a cornfield and it's giving you these scratch, these cuts and everything, and you hate it, you just keep running. Why? Well, in some cases, because you have a a swarm of bees (laughs) 
I forget who it was. Who is it here who had to run through a cornfield to get rid of the bees? Was that? That was David Carell. That was you? Yeah, yeah. Wilt thou forgive that sin through which I run, and do run still, though still I do deplore? In other words, I still hate my sin, and yet I'm running it, okay? When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. He's speaking to God. When you've forgiven that sin, I still have more. He says, will you forgive that sin which I have won others to sin and made my sins their door? Now, that's one of the hardest things in life to handle, isn't it? You just see. I mean, it's most obvious with our children. <laughs> but there are many of you who don't even have children yet, and you know people that you've gotten to use drugs, you've gotten to smoke dope, you've gotten to get drunk, you've just about killed them in a car wreck. People that you've bedded, women, you've bedded men. It's not just men who bed women. I mean, you know what I mean. I'm not talking about rape. I'm just saying women are seducers, not just men. And when you think about doing this and you think that God is long-suffering and you think, well, when God says he's long-suffering, what is God suffering from? He's suffering from our sin. And so he says here, wilt thou forgive that sin which I have won others to sin and made my sins their door. Wilt thou forgive that sin which I did shun? I turned away from a year or two, but wallowed in a score. You know, you think about so many sins that are besetting with us. You know, we'll go a year, and then 20 years of bondage. And listen, this is the life of Christians. We're not talking about pagans here. John Donne was a man of faith. And he says, so he says, will you forgive the sin that I turned away from a year or two but wallowed in a score? And do you know what wallow is? It's what a pig does in mud. All right? And then he says, when thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. And so you just see all, what, 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 what all these are, these are, are what, call, what are called heightening aspects of sin. There's the sin itself, and then there's the length that you give yourself to it. There's the sin, and then there's the fact that you win others to that sin. There's the sin that you forsake for a time, and then you return like a dog to its vomit. So he's giving you the sins, and then giving you the exacerbating aspects of the sin. He says, now, when thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. And then he says this. He says, I have a sin of fear that when I've spun my last thread, in other words, when I'm facing death, I have a sin of fear that when I'm facing death, I shall perish on the shore. In other words, he will not make it across to the promised land of heaven. He'll be turned away. And he says, this is my final sin, my sin of fear. And, and fear is a sin. And fear causes a lot of sins. And he says, I have a, sin, a fear, the sin of fear, that when I've spun my last thread, when I'm at the end of life, I shall perish on the shore, and I will not be accepted into heaven. And he says then this, he says, but swear by thyself that at my death, thy son shall shine as he shines now and heretofore. And having done that, thou hast done, I fear no more. And look at the patience of God just in this poem. He's just aware that he has so much to answer for. 
And not just in the past, but in the present. He's so aware of that. And he can't believe that God would be so long-suffering and patient and kind that God would bring him into heaven and give him the blood of his son. And this is the love of God for us. God is patient and God is kind. Listen to the Apostle Paul talking about this about himself, okay, in 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 17. He says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. And it's hard to imagine the Apostle Paul being a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. You know, we look at Donald Trump. He says, I don't have any sins that I need to be forgiven for. I don't need to ask God's forgiveness for anything. We look at Trump Tower and all the guilt, you know, G-I-L-T. We look at what he, you know, brags about, all this stuff. And then we look at the Apostle Paul saying about himself that before God called him to preach the gospel, he was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. And you guys, it's not difficult for God to change Donald Trump. Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton. And I know this because it's not difficult for God to change me or you. Okay? So let's get off our high horse and pray for Barack Obama as he leaves office, for Donald Trump as he comes in, for Hillary Clinton, for Bill. Then he says, I was a persecutor, violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Then he says this, okay, this is Paul talking about himself, and he says this, it is a trustworthy statement, deserving full acceptance. In other words, what I'm about to tell you, dude, is the truth, and you better believe it. That's what that means, a trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save Who? Church members. You know, that Christ Jesus came to save whites. Pharisees. What it says is, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he says, among whom I used to be foremost of all. Is that what it says? It's present tense. He says, I am foremost of all. Listen, I am foremost of all. Trust me. And God delights in using sinners. And whatever sin is in your life is no obstacle to God. When you present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to him, because that's your reasonable worship. After all, his son gave his body up for you. So you just give yourself to him. And listen, the only way you're going to learn patience is if you apologize and you get punched and you, your wife starts getting disgusted at you. 
<coughs> in other words, after years and years sometimes of sins, what you'll see is that God's changing you. And all of a sudden, there will be healing that you didn't think possible even three months ago, let alone 30 years ago. He says, it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. Yet for this reason, I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, foremost what? As the foremost sinner, so that in me as the foremost sinner, the chief of sinners, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience. <laughs> I mean, isn't that a typical Christian testimony? I mean, it's a joke, right? You know, the bestseller on the Christian publishing list this month is somebody who talks about being a blasphemer and a, and a violent aggressor so that God's patience would be visible through him. Now, we're not talking about 20 years ago. We're talking about now for the Apostle Paul. In other words, everywhere Paul went, everybody said, can you believe it? Look at the patience of God. As an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Listen, tell all your pagan friends who don't think that God is merciful and they think they're good. Tell them about your sin and how patient God is with you so that you can be an example of the patience of God because Paul says that he, his, the purpose of him being an example was for those who would believe in eternal life. In other words, future tense. Do you see that? So him showing himself an example of God's patience, future tense would bring people into the kingdom of God. What the world does not need is it doesn't need good Christians. It needs loving Christians. Um, it needs Christians who are learning to love because the sweet spot in being a testimony to God is to demonstrate that you're learning to love. Right? Does that make sense? Because then pagans think there's hope for me. If there's hope for Paul, there's hope for me. If there's hope for Cheryl, for Linda, for Denver, there's hope for me, for Tim. So Paul concludes his testimony saying, yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me is the foremost understood sinner. Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. All right, now, what comes next? And if you know, speak it up. I mean, you hear what's going on here. It's unbelievably raw, right? And so the Apostle Paul has gotten done saying how awful he is, but how it glorifies God by showing his patience and that this will bring people into the kingdom of God. And what's the next thing in the text? Oh, I got you. Did I stump everybody? There was one person named Jason Chen in the first service that got it. 
Do any of you know? David, you know? Uh, sort of, but that's pretty cheap. From a man with a doctorate, you're going to have to do better than that. <laughs> David Wagner? Are you sure? Anybody? Here's what comes next. Now, to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I mean, that is gorgeous. The Apostle Paul is not interested in having a cult about himself. Or he is. He wants the cult to be that he's a violent aggressor and that he is an example of the patience of God so that others will come into the kingdom and when he sees that happening, he sees his sin and his weakness and his unbelief and his blasphemy and God's patience with them and then he ends up telling people about the gospel. When he sees that stuff going down, he says, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever, amen. Because why? Well, because God's getting all the glory and there's no celebrity, there's no bestseller, there's no numbers, there's, no, there's nothing but God. And isn't that how you feel about the Apostle Paul every time you read him in Scripture? Last night I was reading near the end of a biography of, uh, of Augustine that Josh Congrove told me to read. Said it's the best. A guy named Brown wrote it. And I got to the section where the author is talking about how Augustine got to be about 60 years of age, and this is back in the, in the fourth century. And, he, and Rome got sacked, okay? And the apostle, I'm not, Augustine, when he was 60, so he's an old man, like me, he starts writing a book called The City of God. Now, if you go in my library, you will find one book that has more post-it notes sticking out of it than any other book, and that book is Augustine's Confessions. And it's, what its title says is it's a book of confessions of his unbelief, his hardness of heart, and his sins. One of the most encouraging things I ever read when I first turned to Christ was where he talked about how you know, he had a woman, and if they had a child, he wasn't married, but if they had a child, they'd welcome the child. And I just realized that living in Madison, Wisconsin at the time, this is exactly what Augustine lived in. The world had not changed a bit, you know, except that now probably the child would get aborted. But here he was, a fornicator, and all through this book, he confesses his sin, and it's just beautiful. But I've been trying to read The City of God for about 20 years now. And the first 60 pages, 70 pages, were pretty easy because they set your hair on end. But then you start to, to, it starts to get hard. So I've had it on the, on the table next to my bed for at least a decade or two. And occasionally I'll take it out. So last night I'm reading this biography of Augustine, and here's what I find out about this biography of Augustine. When he got to be an old man and, and Rome was sacked, he decided that he was going to write a book to all the intellectuals of the Roman Empire. And that he was going to show himself to be more knowledgeable about their pagan ancestors, their philosophers, than anybody else was. So that when he testified to Christ, they would know it was not because he was ignorant. 
And all of a sudden, I realized, like, I, I can't read City of God because it's just like, yeah. You know, there are tidbits there, and when the, you hit a tidbit by Augustine, it's wonderful. But you have to plow through so many allusions to this pagan philosopher and that classicist, although that's not what they called him, and you're just going on and on and on. Now, stop for a second and ask yourself, how learned was the Apostle Paul? You remember, he was a student of the greatest scholar of the Jews, and the Jews were the people of the book. His teacher was Gamaliel. Have you ever asked yourself why it is that the Apostle Paul wrote so simply? Look at the love chapter. It's not complicated. Love is patient. Love is kind. Oh, deep, Paul. Deep. Right? I always want you to look at the text of Scripture and realize how contrary to the way that people preach and write today it is. It is so simple. God doesn't need us impressing the philosophers. God needs us to say, a duh, excuse me, a duh, love is patient, a duh, love is kind, a duh, love does not. You know what I'm saying? In other words, this stuff is like so obvious. And this is how God inspired it. We don't need to impress the intellectuals around us. What we need to do is be like the Apostle Paul. I was a blasphemer. I was a violent man. But God shows patience through me. I'm the chief of sinners. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And that's a testimony that God uses. Okay. We're in Bloomington. It's a city of knowledge. We've got brains all over the place. And what God needs is simple people. And I'm not saying you're ignorant. You, the Apostle Paul was a learned man. He was erudite. And he would not parade it. He would not do it. God doesn't need you becoming the quarterback of whatever team you like. God doesn't need the president of the United States of America. God doesn't need you going out and getting a degree and showing as a woman that you can excel and you can pursue excellence. Hear me, Amelia? Okay. What God needs is humble Christians who are going to honor him. Okay? And listen, if you feel like all you're doing is failing, it's okay. It's okay. Go on and fail. And ask his forgiveness and ask the forgiveness of the people around you because that glorifies God because then you're an example of God's patience. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> I love you. I, it's what I do. I'm not asking you to do something. I, had, I was able to say to one of my daughters this last week, and not Heather. You'd think everything has to do with Heather this week, but it doesn't. 
I was able to say to one of my daughters last week, you know, that I remembered a year and a half or two years ago when she was reading me the riot act while everybody sat on tiptoes at the family table inside the house. Everybody knew I was getting taken to the cleaners. And they knew why. And so this week I was able to say to her, you remember I was sort of kind of listened to you, remember? Now would you please listen to me? And that's the state of the art in the Christian home. Right? Do you all understand this? You just live as sinners with each other, and Christ came to save sinners, and then in heaven God will pour the righteousness of Jesus on us. And we do become more holy. You are changing. I know it's painful, but you are changing. And everybody around you will tell you that if you're a Christian. But let's not have false standards. Let's not think that if you get done with this sermon today, you finally realize patience is good. And so you're going to go out from here and you're going to be patient. No, love is patient. And you actually don't love. Okay? Can you admit it? You really don't love. One last thing and I'll be done. Um, it doesn't say it here in the text of Scripture, but do you realize that everything it is saying is making the point that love is not an emotion? You know, we have this idea that if God is kind to us, we will learn without pain. We will become holy without pain. That if, that if we suddenly get it, and some of you will remember, I used the illustration of the Doors song, you know, break on through to the other side. Break on through to the other side. And that's like spirituality for evangelicals today. You know, if I could just break on through to the other side. But have you, you know, I, I spent, uh, I want to say, uh, I don't know how long I spent, but I spent quite a bit of time with a sledgehammer breaking on through to the other side of a silo because they needed to put all the utilities in the silo and we were making a hostel in the barn and there needed to be a door through the silo. So I took a sledgehammer. <laughs> Have any of you ever tried to break up a silo? I've cleaned up a broken up silo that a tornado hit, but it would take a tornado to break a silo. You know, it's about, David, am I right? It's about that thick. And it's a combination of concrete and stones and you're hitting it with a sledgehammer. And that's the break on through to the other side of Christian sanctification. You hit it, you apologize. You ask God to forgive you. You hit it again, you apologize. And you know that after quite a few hits, finally, there was a hole in that silo. And it was brute force. There were no electric tools. I didn't have a jackhammer. And so let's all of us realize that when God tells us to love and that we're nothing without love, and then he tells us love is patient and kind, he hasn't given us a formula that now that we have it, everything's cool. And remember, love is not an emotion. If you have an emotion for a woman and you're about to marry her, it's not love, I hate to tell you. It's infatuation, it may be disgust, but it's not love. Because you don't begin to love until you walk obedient to God with your wife. And typically, the greatest love you'll ever have for your wife will be the times where you do the thing that you absolutely hate to do. And you know that this serves her perfectly. 
And you know that love isn't a, a feeling that comes up from your guts. You know that God said love is patient, love is kind, and so you are patient with your husband, with your wife, and you are kind. And you don't envy it. This last week, I really had trouble. My wife got an invitation to speak at a large women's conference. And, you know, I don't want to speak at women's conferences, you know. But how come she gets to do it? <laughs> and then I remembered that my dad, the last 10 years or so of his life, and he, you know, he was a member of the United Million Mile Club. He spoke everywhere. But I remember my mother started getting these invitations, and Dad would sit at the other end of the table, and he would say, Oh, Lord, save me from being Joe Briscoe's husband. Well, at that time, Jill Briscoe was the woman that was getting all these speaking invitations. And so my dad was making a joke about, how come she gets to do it, you know? Love doesn't envy. Love doesn't envy. If your children love your wife more than you, don't envy her. Don't resent her. It doesn't boast. Love is not an emotion. Love isn't a feeling. Love isn't cotton candy. Love is not clouds and mists and vapors. Love is absolutely intensely hard work. Love, Wayne said to me before the service, is an action. It's not a feeling. And so I've had many men and women in counseling tell me that they don't love their husband or wife. And... It's the stupidest thing in the world to say. It's stupid. Because the person that tells you that knows that they, you know they don't know what love is. Love, are you ready? You ready? Love is patient. <laughs> love is kind. Love doesn't envy. Love isn't arrogant. Now, do you love your wife? I told you I don't love my wife. Well, why not? I can't. Okay, you can't. Okay, I got it. So you can't be patient. You can't be kind. You can't stop envying. And you can't stop being proud. No, 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 that's not what I mean. I just don't find her attractive. <laughs> you know, oh, okay, I got it. That's lust. That's infatuation. That's not love. If you love your wife, you will begin to have lust for her and infatuation. Now, I don't mean lust and infatuation because they have pejorative meanings. You know, they're negative. I just mean that you will find your wife attractive in proportion to how much you love her. Do you know? You won't want to look at pornography if you look at your wife. Okay? Okay? Love your wife. Love your parents. Love your husband. But I think a lot of that went on last week, right? Because you went home and apologized to him, right? Right? Oh, please, tell me you did. Did any of you do it? Husbands, did any of your wives say they were sorry to you this last week? Oh, there's one, one nodding. Anybody else? Oh, you guys, you women. 
You know, it reminds me, Andrew, it reminds me of sitting in premarital counseling recently, and you're talking to them about the most important things, and then in the middle of it, all of a sudden you look at them and say, I know what you're thinking right now. That's what you think I'm saying. You know, has anybody ever listened to you before getting married? Those of you that went through premarital counseling, you hear anything the pastor said in your premarital counseling. Oh, you lie. <laughs> you lie. So last week, apparently, I was just going, yep. <laughs> Women, ask your husband to forgive you. <laughs> Honestly. I'm sorry, but I know some of you didn't want to raise your hand, but I see your eyes, and I know not many of you did. Yeah, I see you. I see that hand. <laughs> and I'm not going to embarrass you more by asking you to actually answer my question, but listen, women, I have no patience if you did not ask your husband to, to forgive you for something last week. None. There's no excuse for that. How can you be a Christian and not have anything to ask your husband to forgive you for this last week? I have no patience for it. None. Sorry, I didn't know the sermon was going to end this way. Let's pray.